This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID, the smart choice for MDL implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant and UL certified for all transaction modes. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Now celebrating our 90th anniversary. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone. This week, we have a new partner to introduce to you, and it's the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. And I'm here with their CEO, Bill Alexander. Bill, welcome to our AmpliCast. Ian, thank you for having me, really. Thank you for um, not only creating and starting this partnership with us, but also thank you for inviting me here today to sort of share what I see as our story and, and talk about you know the legacy and, and the mission of our organization in terms of honoring the fallen and hopefully telling their stories. Absolutely. Uh, so AMVA has a tradition, and this is, I think, where many of us might have seen the name cross their radar. Uh, of course, AMVA is the organization for both DMVs and law enforcement, and particularly in the U.S., it's the state police, state troopers. And we give a donation every year to the fund in the name of the fallen troopers across, uh, across the United States. Uh, that funds go to help your organization, and so I don't know that folks really understand the depth and breadth of what you do, but I want to go back to the beginning because it's the Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund, which was originally created to build a memorial back in the 80s, as I I understand it. So take me back to that origin story, at least as you know it. I know you weren't there in the the mid-80s, but as you understand, what created the original interest, desire, and motivation to create this effort? Well, I, I sort of like to start the story in the mid-60s when then-President Kennedy uh, declares that every May 15th will be Peace Officers Memorial Day. I think that's really sort of uh, maybe not the starting point, but a starting point broadly across the law enforcement profession in terms of recognizing the service and sacrifice of so many in the profession and really putting a pen in the map, hopefully for the American public, to really recognize the cost that men and women in uniform have paid and continue to pay every single year. So I, I like to use that as at least a starting point. Okay. In 1984, I, I think even in the years before 84, I think the profession broadly had begun to recognize that we, I say we collectively, I still say we, I hope our, your audience won't begrudge me saying words like we, us, our, when I yeah. refer to what I still see as our profession, having retired from law enforcement two years ago. But I really do feel like that in the late 70s, early 80s, the profession was grappling with this idea that somehow we, again, collectively, were falling short in terms of remembering, honoring, memorializing the men and women who had died in the line of duty. Mm-hmm. And so in those that late 70s, early 80s, uh, organizations like Concerns of Police Survivors, uh, particularly the Fraternal Order of Police, had begun some relatively informal gatherings Uh, historically based in Washington, D.C. at the Capitol to sort of remember the men and women who had died in the line of duty. And again, I think broadly the profession was recognizing we must find some way to remember these men and women who are sacrificing everything in service to us. Mm -hmm. And this conversation began about a national memorial. And I know that it had some headwinds in the late 70s and the early 80s, but um, in 1984, Congressman Biagi and uh, Senator Pell uh, 
put cobbled together this uh, legislation and they got it passed. And that legislation authorized the creation of what became known as the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. Okay. It has the word fund in it because it is creating a fund which would then allow for the collection of donations. Mm -hmm. Those donations being used to ultimately uh, design and then build what we now know as the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial. So as the current CEO of the fund, if I'm being honest, I don't necessarily love the word fund yeah. because I don't know that it's accurately portraying to people who hear the name now what we actually are. I think yeah. uh, a better description might be National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial and Museum yeah. or National Law Enforcement Officers um, Memorial Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, I've recently had conversations with the board like, hey, would you be open to us potentially changing the name from fund to something that I think is better accurately sure. describes who we are and what it is we're doing? But you know, uh, so over time, the organization grew, uh, starting with the memorial, and I think most people who know of the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Organization, such as we are, most people who are even aware of us think almost entirely about the memorial, which has sure. been and really continues to be the cornerstone of our organization. It's Let's talk about the memorial, because I'm not sure all our listeners, we have, we have some law enforcement listeners who probably are aware of it, maybe even have visited it, but we've got listeners, honestly, I've got folks all over the world that, that listen to this podcast. For those who don't know what the actual memorial is, tell me a little bit about uh, the actual physical memorial that sits in downtown D.C. and the importance of the way it was designed and what the, the meaningfulness when you go and visit it. Yeah, of course, being in law enforcement myself and working in law enforcement locally, I have been to the memorial many, many times even yeah. before I joined the organization. So it has been a, a central part of law enforcement, certainly during my time in law enforcement. But it is a it is a parcel of three acres of land in the heart of Washington, D.C. It actually sits right on top of the Judiciary Square Metro uh, station stop. It really is a pristine, beautiful place. There, there's something about being there which I find very soothing. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's again three acres and there are two primary walls uh, surrounding the sort of outer edges on both the east and west sides. Uh, each of those walls have 64 panels mm. and on those panels today are the names inscribed of our heroes, 23,785 mm. men and women who have all died in the line of duty across the broad stretch of U.S. history serving in law enforcement. And usually when I reference that number, I add an asterisk and say, and counting, yeah. uh, because uh, for those who don't, aren't aware, this is a very living memorial. And every single year, of course, tragically, we continue to add hundreds of new names. So the memorial uh, finished construction in 1991. They added at that time 12,000, just over 12,000 names, which they thought had mostly encompassed all of the historical deaths that they were aware of. Uh, and they thought that the remaining space on the wall would get us through the about the year 2100. Oh, wow. Uh, we have far, far outpaced those original estimates, yeah. in part because every single year we continue to find what we refer to as historical deaths. Mm -hmm. uh, so upwards of a dozen or two dozen names a year. Uh, someone will be... Uh, you know, the great, great, great grandchild of a, right. uh, a, a, a law enforcement officer in the Midwest who, you know, interrupts a bank robbery and is killed. That, that story travels down through the family tree, but for whatever reason was missed yeah, to us in the sands yeah. of time. And, and we look at those stories and add them if they're appropriate. And then, of course, on top of that, also every single year, um, historically, plus or minus 150 to 200 men and women in uniform die in the line of duty in the 
preceding calendar year. So all of those names we add as well. So that is the memorial. It's a, it's a place for not just those of us in law enforcement, but what I would argue all of us as citizens of this country to recognize and remember the really, really terrible cost that law enforcement is paying in terms of helping to keep our community safe and preserving our democracy. Now, when you talk about law enforcement and men and women in uniform, I'm sure you have some parameters and definition as to what that means and what doesn't that mean. Because they, so can you elaborate? I mean, obviously there's the obvious ones, state troopers, police officers of uh, metropolitan or local police departments, um, sheriff's offices, I would, I would presume, but there must be some other categories that may not be as obvious to those outside of law enforcement. Sure, no, it's a great question. So we, we encompass all functions of law enforcement across the entire United States and her territories, um, including tribal areas in the country. So within those boundaries, again, the broad boundaries of the United States, if you are performing a law enforcement function and ultimately die serving in some capacity towards that law enforcement function, we would consider you a law enforcement officer in the United States, and we would appropriately add federal, your name. So state, federal, local, state, tribal. local, city, tribal, oh. uh, police officers, sheriffs or deputy sheriffs, corrections officers, um, academic and educational institution, police departments, uh, and again, okay. into the territories, and military police. So if you are oh. a military police officer and you ultimately die as a result of performing that law enforcement function, we would count that as a line of duty death serving in law enforcement. So I, I add that caveat because if you're a military police officer and let's say you're deployed to Iraq in the middle of a combat zone and you are performing the combat function right. beyond outside of the scope it's of your normal line, of, it's not that a would law not be line of duty death. correct. But yeah. if you are doing military police work, say you're guarding a, a base and you interrupt, say, a robbery in progress and you were shot and killed, certainly we would recognize that as a law enforcement line of duty death and add their name as appropriate. So you you had mentioned that in design, you thought it would take it to 2100 originally, or they thought it would take it to 2100 originally. Obviously, for lots of different reasons, it's outpacing that historical, as well as, unfortunately, the numbers you have to add every year. How much space do you think you have left currently? Well, that is another great question. Uh, we, this year, will now add what will be the final line of names on what was the original memorial walls. Oh, wow. So my predecessors recognized that we were running out of space, and they authorized an expansion, uh, which was just completed in 2021. So right now, on the top of what was the existing walls on both the east and west sides, there is now about an 18-inch uh, expansion, raising the walls, mm -hmm. uh, which we think will give us room for about another 12,000 names. And sitting here now, I'm not entirely confident that even that space will get us through the year, say, 2060. Mm -hmm. I think it's possible we eclipse even that moderate, medium-term goal there. Yeah. Uh, and what happens then, I, I don't know, uh, because the National Park Service has said that the expansion that we have completed in 2021 is as high as we can go. Mm -hmm. They want to preserve the sight lines there across the memorial. So whatever happens in the future, uh, of course, I'll be long gone by then, but a decision will have to be made. Yeah. How are we going to expand the memorial in a way that allows for new names? Would we create a new series of walls, perhaps right. an inner ring or something different? But um, Again, so we have this expansion. We sure. now have room for probably two or three decades, but beyond that, we'll again be in a situation yeah. where we need to find new room. So you may not be in the position by 2060, but two to three decades happens quicker than we think. So I suspect yes. the planning of that 
may indeed be on your watch. It is on my radar and it is a conversation that I need to initiate with the board in terms of what, what sort of seeds do we need to plant today yeah. to make it easier and viable for the memorial to expand in a way that um, not just the memorial fund, not just the board of directors, but I think all of us in law enforcement, what is the appropriate way and space and place uh, to expand the memorial in a way that you know, recognizes the original design and adds to it in a way that everyone thinks is yeah. respectful. So one of the ways you've expanded the, the scope and the breadth of the organization, and you even said it in a possible new name, is Memorial and Museum. Um, that's a more recent development in, the, in this life cycle of the, of the timeline here. But tell us how that got started. Yeah, so obviously we, we started there in 84 with the creation of the Memorial Fund. Donations were collected and the uh, memorial itself is actually built and commemorated in 1991. And then over the next plus or minus three decades, the organization was obviously focused mostly on this memorial. But in the even in the earliest days, the then CEO who... Uh, is still around. In fact, I just had lunch with him uh, about a month ago, Craig Floyd. He, he, even in the earliest days, also envisioned a companion uh, museum to tell the story of American law enforcement in conjunction with remembering the service and sacrifice of so many in the profession. And so it took them almost 30 years to really see that plan into fruition. But um, the museum was ultimately built and opened in 2018, so it's yeah, really it is, new. Yeah. Uh, of course, I'm a little biased, but I think the museum is absolutely amazing. It really is a world-class museum. I've been there. I would I would agree. It's, it's highly impressive and a great um, great experience. And not um, you didn't ask me to say this, but it's you know you think about the idea that it's a museum not only to the history of law enforcement but recognizing the fallen officers. Um, it's not a somber, depressing experience that you might fear it is. It's it's engaging, it's interactive, it's educational, um, and it's inspiring to understand, especially for a non-law enforcement person like myself, to understand and appreciate the history of, of that community. That's very kind, and I'm glad you said that. That's a, that's a thousand percent correct. The, the museum is not necessarily a story of just about fallen officers. You, you don't go into the museum, and certainly you don't leave the museum, I hope, feeling uh, some level of grief or sorrow or contemplating death throughout the entire experience. The right. museum really is supposed to serve as a way to say to the American public, here is what law enforcement has done over the last 250 years in law enforcement. While m there's plenty of places outside the museum where you can find where police officers have made mistakes or perhaps committed criminal acts or perhaps have the profession broadly has something to atone for, say, over the last 250 years. The museum is not that. The museum is a place where you can come and really enmesh yourself in the massive amount of good that I would argue law enforcement has done and continues to do today in terms of protecting communities and preserving democracy. And the museum tells those stories in, a, in I think, a really inspirational way uh, to really give people a sense that law enforcement really has been an integral part of the fabric of our country. Mm -hmm. And they haven't always gotten it right, but certainly I would argue their motives have been altruistic, uh, well-meaning, and men and women have given themselves, uh, in many cases, in 23, more than 23,000 cases, they've given everything in terms of that mission, that that really life-searching goal of giving back to and providing to their community. And, and we hope we do a good job of telling those stories in the museum. And so, does the museum seem to be popular? Are you seeing the kind of visitors you want to see? What's the, the strategy? Because it's, it's a, I would imagine it's a challenge for any museum in DC that doesn't have the name Smithsonian next to it. 
yes. to just to compete to get the people in the door. Yes, unfortunately, I, I wish I could tell you that our attendance numbers were just through the roof. Yeah. Uh, it opened again in 2018, and the attendance was, uh, we were certainly getting some visitors inside the museum, but uh, within a year, we were facing the uh, COVID-19 sure. pandemic, and then the museum closed for longer than it had been open, mm. and we, re we essentially reopened on a partial schedule halfway through 2022, so we're open now Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And unfortunately, we just have not seen the attendance numbers return to anything close to what we might call normal. In part, I think that is because uh, even the city of Washington, D.C. hasn't returned to what you and I might think of as normal pre-pandemic. Uh, of course, before we started the podcast, we were talking about virtual work and yep. how is that a necessary component of work these days? And lots of companies are shifting resources to outside what most people would deem a normal traditional office. I think that's impacting our numbers. And... What is real, also really impacting our numbers is, is that we are in Washington, D.C. We're literally from the front door of our museum. You could throw a rock and hit a dozen world-class museums yep. like the Smithsonian Air and Space that you can go into for free and really have a unique, compelling experience. And so it's not just that local traffic in D.C. is down. It's also that we, in terms of our museum experience, are competing against lots of major players in the Washington, D.C. space. Um, so how do we as an organization, this is certainly one of my challenges and our challenges, yeah. is how do we as an organization get our message out in a way that says to people, hey, there actually really is something compelling about coming here and seeing this story. Even if you're not in law enforcement, there's something unique about our museum. And, and I'm convinced that people who go in there, particularly those who have no law enforcement experience, will come away having learned something and, and really, I hope, having having exposed themselves to probably something that they have not seen or heard or or really grokked in some meaningful way before about law enforcement. I'm convinced people come out of the museum changed in a way that really has allowed them to reflect to some degree on what law enforcement has done and is yeah. that what they are doing in our country today. So one of the things I noticed in, in uh, some research that we've done preparing for this podcast is while the foundation is about the fallen officers, the history of law enforcement, it seems one of the newer areas is, well, we could also do some more to support today's law enforcement officers uh, with their health and wellness, whether it's to protect and avoid a potential line of duty death or just to make the life of a law enforcement officer all the more healthy. Yeah, so at a, at a high level, we think of our organization as really being three pillars. So one of those pillars is the memorial itself, where we honor the fallen. One mm -hmm. of those pillars is the museum, where we try to tell the story of American law enforcement. And the third pillar is what we refer to as officer safety and wellness. It's where we as an organization, in part, try to take some of the data related to those line of duty deaths. Of course, now we have um, more than almost 40 years worth of data in terms of how, where, why men and women in uniform are facing fatal outcomes. And that really does allow us as an organization to get a window into the, to the, to the circumstances there. What, what is going on and is there some ability for us to look at that data and find solutions, not just for the men and women in uniform, but also for members of the public who obviously law enforcement is sworn to protect. So through officer safety and wellness, we are always thinking about, talking about, crafting, creating, editing, amending programs and best practices from across the country. Mm -hmm. And our goal there is to, to push those out in what we hope is a meaningful way to turn that risk dial down for men and women doing the job, uh, to make it safer for them. We use the phrase to try to keep names off of the wall, referring mm -hmm. to our very sacred memorial. 
uh, and again, by extension, also make it safer for members of the public who law enforcement has sworn to protect. So we really do have as a core tenant of our organization, not just honoring the fallen, not just telling their story, but also how can we as an organization use our data, use our network, use our reach, use our brand to push information out, which we hope will make it safer for the profession writ large. And so how do we do some of that? You know, the last few years, it's no secret to say there's been some challenging conversations around law enforcement in, in the country. As one of the primary curators of the history of law enforcement, how do you use that history to inform and learn about where we are and where we need to go in terms of this conversation around law enforcement? Sure. Well, we have a team in the museum dedicated to programs. Uh, so we have our own podcast uh, show. It's uh, Precinct 444 for anyone who's interested. And we try to tell true crime stories or interesting um, artifacts around law enforcement or have conversations about law enforcement. Um, but within the museum, we have a whole host of uh, ideas and, and past events where we've done both in-person events, gathering people together for presentations, roundtables, again, podcasts. Um, and on our board today is the who's who of law enforcement organizations. I know you know them all, but for your audience, sure. think Fraternal Order Police, Concerns of Police Survivors, International Association of Chiefs of Police, National Sheriff's Association. On down the line, if you can think of a major police organization, they are almost certainly on our board. Mm -hmm. And we try to use those connections to one, solicit information from them. Where are you finding friction points in law enforcement? Where are you finding friction points in terms of engaging with the community? What are you seeing in, say, social media, popular media, news media? What are our elected politicians saying that is causing uh, us as a profession to either take flack or something that we maybe need to address? And how can we initiate and come together and have a conversation, uh, perhaps more than a conversation, find solutions? Uh, and just as importantly for us, we as a brand, we as an organization have historically been completely non-political. We are nonpartisan, mm -hmm. um, And I really do think that the public, to the degree that they are aware of us, view us very uniquely in the broader law enforcement sphere. I think, I think the public largely trusts us because we have been nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. And I can say with certainty that has allowed us to, again, through our network, not just pull in, say, organizational leaders or thought leaders from the law enforcement side, but also to really pull in organizational leaders and thought leaders from outside of law enforcement to bring them into the room to have a seat at the table to have sometimes those nuanced complicated sometimes tough conversations yeah. uh, and to find common ground and i really do think that the times that we have done those things including with big organizations like the naacp or noble a national mm -hmm. organization of black law enforcement executives or any topical sort of community related we're having this friction point we really have had success there in bringing people into the into the same room and i always feel like every single time we do one of those both sides of the uh argument is not the right word but both sides of the conversation come away having learned something about the other that they probably would not have learned independent of us bringing them together i think people in the community who really have known law enforcement experience really come away energized to some degree really recognizing that law enforcement is trying to be part of the solution for whatever the problem is, whether yeah. it's real or perceived. And I think law enforcement comes away um, recognizing that the community wants fair, uh, fair justice and treatment of their communities, which I think law enforcement is largely trying to provide. And also, I think law enforcement oftentimes comes away recognizing that we as a profession, law enforcement as a profession, 
we haven't done a great job oftentimes of explaining what it is we're doing and why we're doing it mm -hmm. and what our training methods are. And oftentimes the actions of law enforcement, I would argue, are perceived or perhaps misperceived by the public in ways that I don't think law enforcement oftentimes recognizes. Mm -hmm. And so those joint collaborations of bringing community and police together are very fruitful every single time we have them. And so that, you know, that's just one among many of the kinds of things that we're trying to do as an organization. That's great. One of the areas, and I don't know if it's hit, hit your radar, uh, because it's very specific to the law enforcement nexus in, in our community, of course, as relates to traffic safety and um, highway law enforcement, there's been this movement in parts of the country to reduce the ability for law enforcement to conduct on-the-road highway safety law enforcement. They can't do the kind of traffic stops they used to do. They can't take certain actions as relates to uh, dangerous driving unless it is absolutely beyond, beyond the pale. Um, and it's leading to not only highway fatalities, which of course continues to be on the rise, but other crimes going undetected. And so it's a little bit of that maybe overcorrection that has occurred the last few years of pulling law enforcement back. Have you seen, or is it in your, in, in your organization, having conversations around that right balance, particularly as it relates to highway safety law enforcement? Yeah, it was certainly I think law enforcement writ large and certainly uh, heads of agent, public safety agencies are recognizing that that has really been a trend that seems to have been gaining traction. I think the underlying issue from, say, the community standpoint or perhaps legislator standpoint is, is that they feel like um, particularly disadvantaged communities or minority communities or communities where crime is high, to some degree they feel like uh, law enforcement is over-indexing on those areas and that is resulting in some number of, let's say, you know, completely innocent people within those neighborhoods constantly being on the receiving end of a stop by law enforcement and that of course to some degree is influencing the relationship between law enforcement and those communities mm -hmm. where they they feel like they're being over patrolled so I can understand that I can at least steel man that side of the argument as to why people might say hey maybe we need to dial back on these traffic stops us we as an organization we wouldn't necessarily take a position on whether this is good or bad or whether legislators should move the needle there but i would say to you personally bill alexander certainly as a prior law enforcement officer that i really do think it's a, a big big mistake to be dialing back on how why when police officers should be making traffic stops not that legislators and then obviously the broader public shouldn't have a cognizant awareness of and perhaps a voice in when and how law enforcement is conducting their actions but um, you know, I have seen firsthand how traffic stops really do impact crime, mm -hmm. violent crime, property crime. The, the list just goes on and on. The number of times that police officers make what seemingly is a random police stop or, a, you know, a normal police stop then leads to some closing of a case. You're finding someone who has an open warrant. You're finding someone who was wanted for murder. Uh, you happen to look in the back seat and you can see what is clearly evidence of a recent crime, whether that's a burglary or a robbery or, you know, traffic stops, while not always perfect, have been and continue to be really an incredible tool for law enforcement to help close crimes beyond just the traffic stop. And of course, yeah. and now I'm, I'm broaching into the after effects of traffic stops. Right. If you are really focused on traffic stops, I would also argue that traffic stops have been and continue to be the main uh, ability of law enforcement to influence traffic flows and really serious traffic violations. Mm -hmm. um, 
one of the things that gets so much attention every single year is the number of men and women who are shot and killed by police, which yeah. historically averages about 1,200. Out of those 1,200, plus or minus, according to the Washington Post, 60 of those they turn they deem unarmed. Uh, of course, I think I could talk to you and your audience and convince you that <clears throat> most of those what the Washington Post calls unarmed are probably still justifiable shootings. I think I could get people to a place where they understand that there are occasions where an officer might have to fire his gun. So I know I'm a little off topic, but I'm going to circle okay. around here and say there's another statistic that most people don't know about, and that is, is that upwards of 40,000 people a year die in automobile accidents. Yeah. Yeah. And that is just the tip of the iceberg compared to the number of people who are in an automobile accident and have a serious injury. So 40,000 people die, mm -hmm. probably hundreds of thousands of people are seriously injured. Mm -hmm. The real, really the only mechanism for us as a country, as a society to think about and, and try to massage that number down is traffic enforcement. And so the I, for me, the idea that we are going to somehow take away that tool from law enforcement and basically let people run rampant, wild and free on the roads, most people are driving perfectly fine, but there, there is just enough of a small minority of people who will speed egregiously, aggressive drive, um, you know, fail to just pay attention to what common sense basic uh, rules of the road, which will result in serious injury or death. And I think we as a country should be working to move that 40,000 deaths per year dramatically down and sitting from where I'm sitting, the only way, the only tool we have right now to move that number down is through traffic enforcement. So I just can't imagine taking away that tool from law enforcement. You mentioned a couple times being a former law enforcement officer yourself. You said about two years ago you retired from that career as you switched to this association world, really, and with, yes. the, with the fun memorial museum. We'll, we'll use all the words. Uh, but tell me a little bit about your background as a law enforcement officer yourself. Well, I was... Uh, I, was, I grew up in Northern Virginia in Manassas. Um, I really, from an early age, all I wanted to do was be a police officer. I can remember um, even from my earliest years sitting on the floor next to my grandfather as he was in his uh, then Lazy Boy and we would watch Chips together. Okay. Yep. Uh, and of course I know that's dating myself. <laughs> um, but watch, watching Ponch and John go yeah. out and fight crime and give back to their community in, in, in a way. And it, to me, even then, it wasn't so much about, well, as a kid, it was probably about driving motorcycles fast on the California highways, right, and, and intervening and in crime progress. But as I aged, I really did have some sense of there's something more than altruistic, something more than noble about entering a career and a profession which you really are having an impact on the community in which you live. For me, it wasn't a religious calling, but it certainly was a calling that I think lots of people perhaps everyone in law enforcement really resonates with, that you, you are doing something good, giving back to your community in a really, really meaningful way. And so I was living in Manassas. Of course, my parents wanted nothing more than for me to go to college and do the four-year degree. And I was one year into this community college stint, and I uh, got a wild hair, and off I joined the Air Force, okay. uh, specifically to be a police officer. And I thought I was going to go see the world, and I got stationed at Andrews Air Force Base of all places, which is, I think, the closest geographic Air Force Base to my hometown in Manassas. And uh, I was a police officer, but really in the, in the Air Force, for me, that meant mostly standing at the front main gate and waving in cars. I'm not disparaging that to sure. any degree, and I'm not disparaging military police officers writ large. But I did have, even from those earliest days of being a police officer in the Air Force, I could I had an immediate visceral sense that what I viewed as, let's say, real police work, and again, I don't mean that disparagingly towards military police officers, 
was occurring right outside the main gate from where I was standing. Uh, you know, Andrews Air Force Base is in Prince George's County. 30 years ago, Prince George's County had a lot of crime, and I could see evidence of that right outside the main gate. In fact, right across from the main gate, there was a nightclub. Every Thursday night, they would have a ladies' night. Every Thursday night, there would be a stabbing or a shooting or a serious police response. And I, I so connected with wanting to go do that. And so uh, I finished my four years in the Air Force, and I applied for the Prince George's County Police Department. Of course, it was completely different than uh, mm -hmm. almost 30 years ago. There were thousands of applicants for mm -hmm. every single open spot. Uh, I was not convinced I was going to get hired, but I did, and I joined the police department. I spent 25 years at the Prince George's County Police Department. Uh, every single second of it, I treasure. Uh, there's not a single uh, regret I have in terms of being a police officer. I really do think it's an honorable career filled with men and women who really are trying to do uh, the right thing. I rose through the ranks. I spent the first 12 years just in patrol. That's all I wanted to do was answer 911 calls. And lots of my peers, and I think uh, to the degree that anyone is in law enforcement listening to this, lots of people join the police department and they want to very quickly progress past patrol. Their mm -hmm. aspirations are to, say, investigate, be yep. a detective, investigate crimes, go to a specialty unit, be in canine, uh, go to the harbor unit, uh, be in homicide, right? And I, I again, I'm not... I'm not saying any of those avenues are wrong or bad or that people shouldn't aspire to those things. There's obviously a great interest in each of those areas. But I, I just had such, such a calling to being on the road. There was something really um, pulling me towards this idea of there's no better job than to show up every single day and have no idea what your day is going to entail. Every single call is something new. Uh, in every single call, I, th I think every police officer who might hear this will resonate with this, is every single call you really do even as an individual police officer, really have the power to dramatically impact and affect someone's life in that community, hopefully in a meaningful way. And that really resonated with me through my career. But eventually I got to the point where I recognized I, I can't stay a corporal forever. I, I really should be trying to make rank, not only because it would financially benefit me, which it did, but also because I recognized there, there are too few leaders in law enforcement who are willing and able to use their experience beyond just the calls for service that you're handling individually. And I could see that, you know, I, I, I say this very humbly to the degree I can. I don't, I don't often toot my own horn, as they say, but I, I could see that I had the ability to probably have a greater impact than just mm -hmm. one Bill Alexander responding to a call, that I could impact, say, a squad as I was as a, a street sergeant overseeing a squad that I then went on to become a lieutenant and I was in charge of two squads, really having an impact across a really big geographic area of Prince George's County. And then I went on to captain where I went into eternal affairs and um, a little bit in media relations. And then I made major, uh, the chief saw something in me that uh, inspired him and he gave me charge of a major station, which is um, in Prince George's County, they call it District One and it encompasses the area which includes the University of Maryland. Oh, sure. A gym, not just for the state of Maryland, but really a, a high point uh, for Prince George's County. And it was the um, most populated district in Prince George's County, about a quarter of a million yeah. people. And it had some really disparate um, areas and demographics within that area that made it very challenging. A very significant Hispanic population, uh, lots of crime, but also some high points like the University of Maryland and College Park, uh, where, where people in those demographics, everyone wanted to live in peace, but lots of competing cultures, lots yeah. of competing ideas, yeah. uh, and some, so that was very, very challenging. And um, 
I, I was just absolutely, again, every second that I spent in Prince George's County, I was thrilled to be there. And after doing that stint as a major commander, I, I then uh, finished my career in the training academy where um, I was trying. I hope I was having some impact in terms of bringing on those next generations of police officers in what was, um, in my mind, a really progressive police academy focused really heavily on community policing, mm -hmm. being cognizant that every single interaction you have with a member of the public um, spider webs into all of the rest of the community, that that person then goes on to tell someone else a story about how they interacted with the police, and, and again, emphasizing with those young recruits that how much power they had to really impact lives. Mm -hmm. And so I finished there, and um, that was right as I was, they call it, maxing out on, on my job. You sure, were approaching the sure. point where your retirement was not going to increase beyond a certain percentage, and then you were essentially showing up to work for free. Yeah. And uh, right at the time I was close to, a, a close, uh, to maxing out, uh, this job for the memorial uh, came open, and I put my name in, and um, the then CEO, Marsha, said, Bill, you're the guy. I'm happy to hire you. And, and there are, I, I jokingly told my wife before when I was, planning to retire, there's no job in D.C. that I'm going to commute into D.C. every day for from Annapolis. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. I don't want to do it. Uh, this this is the singular job yeah. where the least of my sacrifices is driving an hour each way to come in and to help remember, to tell the stories of the men and women whose names are inscribed on the memorial. And so um, I'm just absolutely humbled, I mean absolutely humbled, to in any way play a part in the telling of those stories and remembering those names. Uh, and to be part of this organization, which has done that for now uh, almost 40 years. That's amazing. That's a great story. And it's, you know, it brings us full circle to where you started. We talked about honoring those that are part of the memorial and the names in your database. Uh, what originally started as President Kennedy's designation of a singular day has also grown. And it's now just a singular day of remembrance. It's now Police Week. And I don't know if folks are familiar with that. And so let's maybe as a last conversation today, tell us a little bit about, about what Police Week is and how people can, whether you're in law enforcement or not in law enforcement, be a part of that remembrance and celebration. Absolutely. Uh, well, Police Week has, as you've just noted, morphed over time into something that is really, really significant. It really, for anyone who is not in law enforcement or perhaps people who are in law enforcement who have not been to Washington, D.C. for a modern day Police Week, it is really staggering what happens here in Washington, D.C. during Police Week. So broadly, Police Week is usually centered around that May 15th Peace Officers Memorial Day. And there are a few signature sort of key tentpole events. One of those is Concerns of Police Survivors invites survivors, mm -hmm. uh, both the most recent year survivors, but also survivors from other years to come to Washington, D.C. And they put on about a full week of a conference which um, really touches on all aspects of law enforcement, survivors, coworkers, grief, dealing with the loss, um, and hopefully finding some ability to have the broad Police Week moment be not necessarily the cathartic starting point of healing, but part of the journey of healing, and hopefully aggressively progressing that journey into healing. Our signature event at the Memorial Fund is we host the uh, annual candlelight vigil. This will be our 36th annual candlelight vigil in this upcoming May. It's where we memorialize and read the names of all of the officers most recently added to our very mm -hmm. sacred memorial. Uh, it's always May 13th, always 8, 8 p.m., and always on the National Mall, where it will again return this year. And that, to me, is the signature 
event of all Police Week. It's open to the public. Uh, every single year, literally thousands, tens of thousands of people from not just around the country, but really around the world mm -hmm. come to help celebrate and remember and honor the men and women who have most recently died, but also, I would argue, to help honor the profession, yeah. to help to help all of us, again, I'm using the word us, recognize that we are giving towards something good, that we, we are contributing our time, we're sacrificing time from our families, and in many cases, sacrificing our lives for a very well-meaning uh, and necessary project. Uh, every single year, it's, uh, the last two years, I've just been astonished as I've seen people from Germany and London and Italy and France. Uh, it, it's just great to see these members from law enforcement agencies outside of our country coming here to help celebrate law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And then in, there's, it's very, very hard to put into words, but there is something in the air at any candlelight vigil that is almost indescribable. There, there is something almost tangible that you can feel in terms of the raw emotion moving through the crowd. Uh, and the crowd every single year continues to grow. Last year we had upwards of 45,000 people attend the candlelight vigil, which is open to the public. Uh, anyone listening to this, you're welcome to come. Please come, support law enforcement, support the men and women who are there uh, remembering their loved ones. Uh, it is just an amazing experience. I, I say to everyone I ever talk to about this, even if you're not in law enforcement, even if you don't know anyone in law enforcement, if you are a citizen of this country, you should come to at least one candlelight vigil to really get a sense of what it has and continues to cost this nation every mm -hmm. single year in terms of preserving that democracy. And you can feel it. You can absolutely feel it standing on the grounds of the National Mall as you are surrounded by tens of thousands of people who are broadly connected to the law enforcement world. And as every single one of those names is read out who have most recently died and been added to our memorial, it's just, it really is quite something that I strongly encourage everyone to come experience at least once. Well, Bill, uh, thanks for coming and visiting today and spending time talking about the memorial, the fund, the museum, and all the great activities of the organization. Uh, we look forward to continuing our partnership and collaboration. Uh, we look forward to continuing to supporting it, though it's we send that check every year in the name of those fallen officers. I look forward to the day where we don't have to send that check. I share that. Officers. I absolutely share that vision, and we're so thankful. Thankful for you for donating to our cause, and, and I'm thankful to you for using your time today and using your platform again for helping to tell our story and share this message and about what we as an organization do. I'm incredibly grateful. Uh, and for anyone listening, if they would like to learn more about us, they can go to our website, nleomf.org. Uh, if anyone wants to correspond with me directly, my email address is bAlexander at nleomf.org. Uh, I welcome in any all contact. I'd love to correspond with people if they have questions. And of course, if anyone has any spare money they would like to contribute to a worthwhile charity, uh, I might argue that we are such a charity. And um, we still, to this day, since the origination of the fund in 1984 till today, we exist entirely on donations. We wow. could not do what we do without the donations from organizations like yours. So thank you again to AMVA. Uh, but we couldn't do, we could, there's no way we could do it. We exist entirely on donations. So if anyone listening has an idea in their mind that they would like to contribute to some degree to something in law enforcement, uh, I, I hope they might consider us. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Bill. Uh, thank you all for listening this week. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Till next week, everyone, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America.
visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.